This episode of the Junior Series Podcast and the Junior Series Podcast Network is brought to you by Bond & Co Menswear. Jason Dovey down at Bond & Co has reopened his store in light of Level 2. He's looking to fit all you lovely looking gentlemen up with some new suits, so if you're in need of some casual wear, knitwear, dinner wear, head down, he'll, he'll sort you out. Um, just getting into a bit of a chat with Jared Carter here. Um, how you doing, Jared? Yeah, I'm good, thank you, Cop. Yeah, what are you going to talk to us about today? Because we haven't even recorded yet, this is just the... Just the ad, oh, ad and track. got no idea, mate. No <laughs> idea at all. Um, hope you don't mind too, mate, but uh, I was just down the road having a chat to mates down at Mount Brewing Company who are, yep. uh, who are quite happy to help sponsor your show today, so they gave us a couple of products. Oh, brought the treats along. For us to have a look at. Outstanding. This is Glenn down at uh, the Rising Tide of Mount Brewing Co. Yep, so they've, uh, they've just brought out a kiwi fruit sour. Uh, the sours kind of scare me a little bit, but yep. um, Outstanding. he's quite keen for us to try them. Gee, we'll have to crack into these, I reckon, during our chat, eh? All right, mate. Let's get into it. Let's go. Senator Barack Obama of Illinois will be the next president of the United States. And we are calling it iPhone. Okay, we're recording this on the 26th of May, it's a Tuesday, it's just gone 3 o'clock. I'm very privileged to be sitting across from the turf manager of Bay Oval Cricket Ground in Mount Monganui, Jared Carter. Jared, how you doing? Well, I'm going well, thank you, Cole. Um, thank you for inviting me on the show. Mate, no worries. Um, we couldn't help ourselves, but... In, in the interim of the intro and what we're doing now, we've cracked these kiwi sours. And what do you reckon? Yeah, we were a little bit early on that, weren't we? <laughs> but um, no, mate, I actually quite like it. I'm not a, I'm not into my sour beers at all. Um, but this one is damn drinkable. It's fantastic. It's actually quite good, it? actually. Mm, so yeah, shout out to the boys at Mount Brewing Company. Outstanding drop you've uh, produced here. Um, Jared, I suppose I just wanted to start by going through some of the grounds around the world you've worked at because you've worked at a fair few. And in the process, you prepared 13 test wickets, and one of those was in charge. Yeah, that's right. The one this year is uh, the first one I've been in charge of. Um, but yeah, I've done prepared uh, or been part of the preparation of 12 others around the world. Right. Uh, let's see if we can go through them. So you started in Nelson? Correct, yep. And Did my apprenticeship down there. Yep, and then to Wellington? Yes. And then you were at Lords of London? Yep. And then moved on to Manchester? Oh, yeah, correct. I came back to Wellington. Sorry. That was at the time when I was working at the Basin. So, yeah, came back for the New Zealand summer and then back again to Manchester the following winter. Right. And then Florida, LA, and that was during your time as at working at New Zealand Cricket? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And then ended up here at Bay Oval? Yes. Yeah, right. So, you've, you've been around the world. Yeah, yeah. Some people uh, tend to think I get around a bit. <laughs> Strictly on a work sense. But, yeah, all righty. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, Looks like we're lucky enough to be on the back end of this COVID saga. Um, what were the challenges being in charge of a ground you probably couldn't even turn up to for a few weeks? Was it hard? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, we were very lucky that we're obviously at the end of the season, so we kill off the grass on the blocks, um, basically strip the top off the blocks and regrass them anyway. So the fact that you know, if we got disease or if we didn't get enough water on it and the grass died, it wasn't a major for us. In terms of the outfield... Uh, once again, lucky enough to have cooch on the outfield, which is a very summer-dominant grass. Um, grows better in summer than it does in winter. 
Um, so we just effectively turned the water off, let it dry out. That way it didn't grow too much while we were away. Um, came back and it was easy enough to get on top of. Mm. Even if it did dry out um, and go brown, um, as soon as we water it again, it would have come back to life. So yeah. No, we were, we were very lucky in terms of that, and especially compared to a lot of other venues. And, you know, you heard about the golf courses and the stresses they were under, so mm. we were very, very lucky. Yeah, no, it makes it a lot easier when you've got, uh, I suppose, grass types that aren't, aren't growing as much that time of year, eh? So, yeah. Um, let's go through the summer you've just had here at Bay Oval, because it was, in terms of, you know, ticking a, few, ticking a few boxes, it was massive, wasn't it? So you had your first test match, what you just touched on. Um, you had an India T20, uh, India ODI, and then you had a women's T20. But that was a curtain raiser to the men's T20, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Right, so how early are you deciding which games have been played on which pitches? Oh, a lot of that generally happens right back when we first start hearing about the schedules. Um, so there's always a couple of rumours floating around before it gets confirmed. So um, you know, I guess part of that process is New Zealand cricket need to be aware of which which pitches, I guess, are in the TV zones, mm-hmm. um, and I guess how many we can host, um, you know, safely and, and with good quality pitches within that TV zone. So it's it's way back early in the process. Last year, I think it was probably oh, before June that we started hearing about it, and then once all that process has gone through within New Zealand cricket offices, that um, it all gets firmed up, and then we really nail it down then, make sure that... What we're thinking is is the correct way to go. Mm. So how many games, or how, so how many strips you got out there at the moment? We've got eight strips. There's currently four in the TV zone. Right. So the TV m- zone means where the cameras can set up end on to the pitches. On the two media towers at the ends. Correct. Right. So how many games do you reckon you could realistically host in a summer? Uh, it's There's a lot of factors come into it. Obviously, the higher the level, the international pitches, you probably wouldn't play more than two games on it. But domestic, um, for the Super Smash, you might squeeze three games onto a pitch. Uh, And then it's also the distance or the amount of days between a game. So double headers work really well if you have it two days later. It can work reasonably well if you have it ten days later as well. But if you start to have a bigger gap in between, well, then the, the pitches just don't last as well with a big gap in between. So if you can get two or three you know, uses quick, close together, then mm. you should be fine. What is that just down to the grass dying too quickly or the clay losing moisture? How do, why can't you keep playing on them? Um, yeah, it generally comes down to the surface of the grass cover. Um, you want the grass to be healthy, even though you brown it off right at the end. You still want the roots to be strong and holding the surface together. Um, as you see in a, like a four or five day game, that they will start to, the leaf comes off the top, starts to, break away at the surface a little bit as well kind of ha- still happens in a one day just not as much and you, then you get to where you weed up and smooth it off again but if the roots start to go like over a period of three to four weeks well then it's kind of it just ends up slower it doesn't end up as good right so you're preparing a wicket for let's say for instance a one day international what does a preparation like that look like is it how long is it um, are there different factors or is it the same recipe every time um are there challenges that pop up in some preps and not in others? What goes into that? Uh, yeah, every prep is different. Um, because it's a living being, I guess, that you've just got to, you've got to judge what the weather's doing as well. I mean, how much drying you get, um, as to how much water you need to put in, uh, how many days out before you give it its last water. Um, the grass condition itself, 
uh, how that's looking at the start of your preparation. Um, sometimes if it's not as good as you want, well then you've got to nurse it through a bit more so you probably do less rolling, then would be ideal. Um, plus then there's also the amount of moisture you get down deep as well. Sometimes if there's short turnaround between games, you don't get as much water in as you'd like. Um, so they're all, they're all different factors. And yeah, a lot of things to judge. A lot of balls in the air that you're kind of working around and, mm -hmm. and trying to work out what is the best for the type of pitch you're preparing. Yeah. Do you ever get instructions from higher beings, whether it be New Zealand cricket or you know teams coming to play? Are they are they asking you for certain types of services? Oh, not really. I mean, well, I haven't per se as myself. Um, we have done it domestic level, but no, it's in terms of the international level so far. Um, we've yeah just been asked to prepare the best wicket we can. What does that look like? The best wicket. Oh, for us, we we like pace and bounce. Um, so, yeah, it's about getting as much moisture and, and deep in the profile as we can. That's probably about two weeks out. Um, and then, yeah, just monitoring the amount of rolling, uh, keeping a very close eye on the grass condition. Obviously, the better the grass condition, the better pace we get as well. Um, but in the last few years, in terms of four-day cricket as well, we, we like our wickets to open up and break up quite a bit and get quite variable. Um, and we've also managed to get them to start turning in the last couple of years as well. So that's, that's probably something new for us and we're definitely looking to develop a bit more. Um, so it sounds like weather plays quite a big role. Um, have you ever had a prep just go to, go to pot because the weather's not playing ball? Or Yeah, we have. I mean, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we've got... Uh, we've had a couple of games in the past, Plunkett Shield games, four days, that, um, yeah, we've prepared thinking, oh, yeah, weather's good, we're going to go in with certain moisture content, um, we want to really get a good bit of pace and bounce out of this wicket, uh, rock up the first morning of the game and she's quite overcast, um, no wind around and, yeah, there's just no drying during that day. Um, in which case we ended up with 23 wickets in a day. So oh, the wow. game was uh, significantly <laughs> over within the first day. Yeah. Um, and that was purely down to just the weather conditions that, on that day that there was just no drying on the pitch and it was just nibbling that enough that mm. was, um, yeah, was enough to take a few wickets rather than the usual story of it drying out by, you know, the lunch break if you have a fine day or, or a bit of breeze around. Right. Have you ever had... The preparation, you think it's gone really well and you're really happy with, um, you, know, you talk about the moisture to the profile and that kind of thing, but then the players just don't do any justice. But, you know, have you ever had bad feedback because just the players haven't played well, but the wicket's good, or people are generally smart enough to see through that? <clears throat> yeah, you do have days where you just think, yeah, the players aren't playing well, mm. definitely. But um, and, and one of those games is probably one of those scenarios where we thought, you know, at the end of the day, the batters got a bit spooked and they went out and they played some absolute rubbish shots. But then you've also got to kind of look back within yourself and think, well, why were they spooked? And, you know, what caused them to play poor shots? And it's because, you know, they talk about the, every ball has your name on it. They just don't know, you know, they're going to get a, a great delivery. It's, the pitch is going to assist that it's going to do something. So mm -hmm. you just know from that aspect that it's just gone slightly too far. Right. Um... You and your team, how big is your team by the way? Uh, quite small at the moment. Um, I'm currently the only full-time employee on the turf side of it. Um, lucky obviously to have yourself for the winter. Yeah. This is the first winter I've had someone helping me. Um, 
plus hopefully in the next wee while we're also going to take on a, a to IC basically a, an assistant so team is growing um, yeah thankfully because it's pretty tough work just you know not having the I guess the, the resources available to you that most other grounds have what other what most sorry excuse me <clears throat> how many staff do other grounds have in comparison to Bay Oval uh, a lot of the the major venues probably have at least four full-time staff um, sometimes I think one or two of them might have six or eight right so yeah, we're well well understaffed yeah, compared to some of those bigger yeah. venues. But a lot of those bigger venues too obviously have more events than what we have, um, and sometimes uh, they've got more than one ground that they manage as well. So mm-hmm. in comparison, um, so what do your summer hours look like? I mean, you're in January. You've got an ODI coming up in a month, and you've just had an ODI. What kind of hours are you putting in? Oh, it, it can be pretty uh, pretty messy at times. Um, pretty much. Every day of the summer, you come in for you know some form, whether it's only an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, just to do a bit of watering. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of numbers, put it this way: I probably do 60, 70 hours through summer, but then through winter, it might knock down to about twenty hours a week. Mm. Is that a hard lifestyle to maintain? Yeah, I was lucky. I met my wife uh, when I was working at New Zealand Cricket. Um, she worked at New Zealand Cricket also, so she knew right from the start what sort of hours that I did. Um, and she loves cricket herself, so yeah, she. It is tough, especially when we've got three young boys that are can be pretty hard work, pretty active. <laughs> um, yeah, she drives around a hell of a lot, looking after them and, and making sure that the house is running pretty well. Plus, um, she's also got a part-time job and studying as well, so she's she's a very Super busy person warm. herself. Yeah, yeah, definitely, mate. Um, so just on that, how, where does the motivation come from? Because it's no one, not everyone can roll out of bed into those seventy-hour weeks, especially when it's pretty taxing stuff out there as well. You've done a lot of stuff on your feet, so you know where does it come from? Um, well, I mean, I've, I guess I've always been a bit of a cricket tragic for starters. Yeah. Um, so when it came to the turf industry. Um, I've always, I guess, gone towards the cricket side of the industry. That's where my passion has been. Um, in terms of, I guess, yeah, getting out of bed and that, this, this venue, I guess, part of, uh, or the lucky part of working with New Zealand Cricket is I was going around all the venues around the country. So when I saw this one up and coming, um, I definitely knew this is going to be the place to be and I or genuinely believed that this was going to be the best ground in the country and still do. Mm. Um, and part of that is, um, yeah, me turning up and doing the best I can every day to to make not just make sure the venue is looking good and, and developing, but um, also want to make sure that cricket in New Zealand is strong and thriving and hopefully the Black Caps and even the White Ferns can um, keep getting better and better as a result of what we're doing. Mm and start yeah, start dominating the world right um, so I kind of want to touch on a little bit now into your journey and how it started so you were at high school and then you dived into an apprenticeship how did that look like is that how it started sorry yeah it, it is I mean when I was at high school <coughs> excuse me um, I did a project uh, I was I was doing horticulture and back then sixth form or whatever it was um, and yeah the, the teacher came to me and said you know need to do a project outside of normal school work that we're doing here sweet as and so I started doing some work on the pitch at the, the, the school which was pretty much just a bit of um, <laughs> topsoil in the outfield or something and it was pretty rough 
But anyway, I did that, and then, yeah, managed to do uh, the following year. Went and um, applied for a job as an apprentice at Nelson City Council. Um, obviously, that project helped me get the job because, yeah, they obviously showed an interest in, in doing this sort of thing, so I picked up the job from there, and away we went. Outstanding. And so from there, what? so you worked for the council for a little while and then left, or what, what, how'd that go? Yeah, I worked for the council. Well, that's when it changed to contracting companies, and so Nelmac is what it ended up being. So yeah. I worked there in Nelson for probably four years, and then they picked up a contract in Upper Hutt, and so I left and went up to manage that contract in Upper Hutt. Right. So you were that would have been quite a big role for someone your age, or...? Yeah, it was. It was more a, uh, a hell of a shift coming from a very, I guess, sunny region as yeah. in Nelson, <laughs> going to Upper Hutt, which is uh, pretty cold and damp um, and rough through winter. So, so no, it was a bit of a change, but, I mean, I loved Upper Hutt as well. I had, you know, some great memories from that place too. Nice. Um, so how long were you there for in the end anyway? Uh, so I was there in that role for about two years before I picked up the job at the basin as a toy at the basin. Right. Yeah. So how did that? So you, did you seek out that job at the basin, or they kind of identified you as someone that might uh, might work out there? I just sort of advertised. Um, yeah, I guess uh, that was basically it. Sort of advertised, applied for it, yeah. got it. Luckily. <laughs> was it the two IC role then, or you got promoted into that role? Oh, it was kind of a joint two IC. So they, it's, um, it was back in two thousand, so just after the stadium opened as well. Yeah. Um, so they, yeah, the, the previous guy left, and then they advertised as kind of a, a joint two IC, so that one works. Well, we meant to both work, be on a, on a level, and work at both venues, but yeah. He ended up, the other guy who started at the same time, he ended up enjoying the stadium. I ended up enjoying the basin. Yeah. Um, even though we still mixed around a wee bit around big events, we were sort of focused on those venues separately. Is there a reason that you enjoyed the basin more? Is that just going back to that cricket tragic in you? And Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I kind of, yeah, I just found the, the stadiums outside of the cricket side of it. Um, yeah, it was just not really my thing. Mm. What did the stadium look like at that point? Because it's changed over a few years, isn't it? Oh, no, it hasn't really. I mean, the only major difference... There are little bits of differences here and there. Like, um, they just resurfaced it a couple of years ago and put a reinforcing system in the outfield. Um, portable wickets got put in not long after I left there. Uh, when I first got there, it was a five-wicket block in the oh, ground. Okay. Um, yeah, and went to portables, yeah, around about the time I left in 2005, six. Yeah. Were there many concerts and that sort of thing going on? Yeah, we had a couple. I remember Robert Williams... Um, being the main one that got well over 50,000 people there and oh, wow. um, yeah and then there was yeah there were a few others what was he yeah right so it was kind of a free ticket into a concert night then was it or oh mate you had to be working yeah <laughs> no doubt about be, that yeah. because <laughs> um, uh, you generally had to you had to tidy up and do things straight afterwards Oh, well. okay. so you, were, you were there and you were working, you were making sure the guys were setting up properly and yeah. not you know, doing anything silly out on the turf. And no one's tipping beers over the bloody seats and that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, so you're at the base and was it during this time you started to look at overseas ventures? Yeah, I was probably three years into it and I'd kind of done most of my study that I had been doing as well. Um, and yeah, obviously the winters were pretty quiet. Uh, and I, I met a guy at a turf conference who'd worked at Lords uh, a few years earlier, and he gave me the contact for the head groundsman at Lords. So yeah, I sent him an email. Um, obviously, the guys at the the basin and the stadium where I worked for, um, they were happy for me to go over the, for six months um, through the winter, save a bit of money on wages, and yeah. obviously help you know me learn something new and, yeah. and you know bring back something 
hopefully that will help us out back here too. Is that the reason you kind of wanted to get into that overseas stuff, just to another string to your bow, learn a bit more? Yep, yeah, definitely, and just because the winters were pretty quiet down at the basin, and yeah, and even though there's rugby events on at the the stadium, I mean they they had that under control. Yeah, what did you learn in Lords? And anything you can think back and go, oh, that's where I learned that, or um, must have some good oh, stories. Yeah, I mean this. <laughs> Lords was a, an interesting place. It was um, obviously good to go there. I mean, it is a pretty iconic venue. Um, lots of great stories. Just the way they set up around the ground and everything too. Mm. Um, yeah, the museum and everything. So it's a really cool place to work. Um, but a lot of what they did was very, very old-fashioned. And, <laughs> and yeah, you kind of sit there scratching your head a few times thinking, what the hell is going on here? Mm. Um, yeah, and there'd be a lot of a lot of things that you'd like to, I guess, try out and, and do, but, I mean, it's just not the way it's done there. Yeah. So, no, it was, it was great, and, yeah, there are things that I would have brought back. Um, but, yeah, definitely definitely triggered a few uh, a few ways of looking at things differently. Yeah. Was that, because Lords is obviously huge on tradition for people that are listening and don't know about Lords. It's quite a, quite a big ground on tradition and history, is, are they stuck in their ways because of that mantra or is it more around the people in charge just have their recipe and they're not really willing to take advice from others? Yeah, oh, that's a tough one. Yeah, I think for me, I, yeah, I found it tough because I guess the, the head groundsman who was there at the time, wonderful guy, great guy, but he just, um, I guess he was very set in his ways. Um, so yeah, if I got on with them quite well at the at the beginning because you yeah, get out there and do stuff and be learning and picking stuff up, and then you know halfway through I'll be like you know start to then get more questioning. I was oh yeah, so why do we do this? Trying to get an understanding of of I guess his thought process as to why he did things a certain way, mm. and I wasn't doing it in a negative way. I was just more trying to learn yeah. to see what what I could bring back and and you know do for myself, but. I think he took that in a negative way is that I was, I was questioning why, why he was doing it and what he was doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he, he kind of closed up a fair bit and gave yeah, less and less information and, <laughs> and the like to him. Yeah, so no, I think he's just, I don't know, he's just very old-fashioned, I guess, and, you know, the way he did things is how he wanted to do it. Yeah. Didn't want to be questioned on it. What, uh, can you remember what games you had that summer? Uh, yeah, that was the summer where New Zealand and West Indies were over there, so okay. um, would have had a test from each of those two two, ga- uh, two nations. Um, and then there was a tri-series between the three of them, with that, well, those two in England, right. and then finished the summer off with the Champions Trophy. Mm. So we had oh, two tests and probably, I think, seven ODIs that summer. Well, it's a big summer, isn't it? Yeah, well, well, it is. It is a big summer, particularly internationally. But yeah. I mean, they also had all their first-class cricket, middle six play out of there. Um, so yeah, it was a, a pretty big summer. You're not getting much time off, then, are you? No, no. That that. Uh, so I was there for just shy of six months, um, and I had I arranged early on three days off around my birthday to go to Amsterdam and and check out the sights over there. Yeah. Um, outside of that, uh, I had one day off. Wow. So, how many days were you there, roughly? About six months. Just under six months, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. How was the how was the body after that? Oh, it was fine, mate. Back then, I was young and <laughs> you, know, you, you survived on the the uh, the alcohol diet. Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, nah, the body was fine. 
What is the drinking culture like over there compared to here? Like, are you going back to the pubs after work most days for a brew? Or? Oh, the worst part was, mate, is that we, we'd walk out the gate. And, uh, of course, the way home for me was past the Lord's Devon. <laughs> and, of course, there's always somebody, summer, summer down there, obviously, and mm. um, yeah, always somebody that you know in there yelling out to you to come and have a beer. So most nights you didn't even have dinner. You'd be kicked out at 11 o'clock at closing. You'd go home, sleep, get up again, come in in the morning. And what time are you starting? Uh, 6.30, I think. Oh, dear. Yeah. Gee, you're not getting much sleep then if you're drinking till about 11, 12. Oh, <laughs> mate, you're young enough, you got away with yeah, it. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, so from there, you come back to the basin for the summer, and then you go to Manchester. Yes. What was behind the change? Or just wanted a different ground, or...? Oh, I kind of, obviously, if, um, yeah, the head groundsman at the time was, was sort of closing up a bit and not really talking a lot about why he's doing stuff, so I kind of, I basically thought, well... You know, I didn't know whether I was going to learn any more out of there, so I just basically emailed every other county around the, the country to, to see if they had any jobs going, and the guys at Manchester emailed back and said, yeah, come on over. Outstanding. Yeah. And so what was what was the difference between that and Lords? I mean, obviously Lords is hollowed ground, but what, what are the main differences that you can kind of think of off the top of your head? Oh, well, Manchester obviously has, uh, has quite a big history as well not quite as much as Lords obviously but um, no it's a pretty amazing place uh, I guess the difference between Lords and Manchester is Manchester uh, well Old Trafford um, is owned by the Lancashire County Cricket Club right? so it's part of the club whereas Lords is owned by the MCC and Middlesex play out of there mm. so you don't have the same club culture that you did at Lancashire um, so you had guys like you know 2005, that's when Freddie Flintoff was in his prime. And I, um, when I first got over there the first day, um, the boss man took me out into the nets and you know, introduced me to the Lancashire team that were training that day, and Freddie was one of them, and, and uh, got introduced to Freddie, and you know, I saw him three or four times that summer when he came back with England. He knew my name. He knew everybody's name in that club. That's quite cool. Personally, and he, yeah. That was just the type of guy he was. So yeah. you, it's that kind of culture. Everyone knows everyone, even though it's massive. They had probably 150 staff all up under their mm. banner. Um, they knew each other. They were they were a family, basically. Yeah. So you must have been there during the infamous 2005 Ashes series. Yeah. How was. cool was that to be a part of? Like during the time, did you know how big it was? Kind of how big it was. Did you, yeah. Talk probably about not it. as big as what it ended up. Yeah. Um, you just sort of like, yeah, it's another Ashes series coming up and like I've obviously uh, grown up around it sort of thing and, and really enjoyed the Ashes series you know I read a few books around in my late teens as well um, around the Ashes and yeah no, I, was, I was quite pumped for it and then um, yeah obviously that, that one was a big one so mm. yeah Any stories from, you remember from the game? Do you remember the game much or? Oh I remember I think it was a nine uh, damn who was it was it a nine down I think towards the end yeah might be the other way around now, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so no, it was another, well, a lot of the games that summer were very, very close games. Um, yeah, but one of the best memories around that test match was uh, Freddie coming in before the game started. At that time, he was sponsored by Thwaites Brewery. <laughs> um, so he dropped off a couple of slabs of, um, and there's like 48 beers in a slab, so just under 100 beers. A few beers there. Um, into the ground shed and said, there you go, boys, that's for you, save them for the end of the game. Um, I'll try and sneak over if I can. Because he, uh, he was good mates with the head groundsman as well. Right, OK. Yeah, and then, um, yeah, sure enough, at the end of the game, we're sitting there having a beer, 
And Freddie comes on over, still in his whites. <laughs> Everything sits down with that stuff, stuff his teammates. He's, uh, he's coming to have a beer with the groundies. Um, sat down for an hour or two with us, got on the turts, dropped, dropped a few thwaites, and then he, uh, he went back and joined the team and <laughs> got on it pretty hard with him for the rest of the night. What a legend. That's quite cool. Um, I suppose, like, around the industry, when the players kind of have time for the groundies, because, I mean... In a way, you almost slave, not necessarily for them, like you do it because you love it, but you're working so hard out there and it's cool when they come and, you know, give you the time of day almost, isn't it, and can appreciate what you're doing for them, so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I think it's changing too over the years. I mean, back when I was at the Basin in the early 2000s, um, I think I've told you the story that, you know, a lot of the guys there, they didn't really talk to the groundies. Um, and even when I was over at Lords that first year and the Black Caps were there, um, all the tests that I'd done at the basin prior to then and not one of the players recognised me when oh, I was over really? there it was, um, yeah one of the physios did so he came <laughs> over and had a chat and that, but no, none of the players spoke to you a lot of them probably played for Wellington at the time as well oh they might have been a couple yeah yeah um, so you rated Manchester better than Lords or don't good for both reasons or both uh, yeah personally I loved Manchester a lot more yeah um, the head groundsman there too he was an amazing guy he uh very, very much a hard man. He had, um, yeah, nothing shy of going out three or four nights a week, getting back at 3 a.m., but then turning up at work 7 o'clock in the morning like everyone else, looking fresh as a daisy. Oh, you wouldn't even know. Could not even tell. But, <laughs> uh, but he was also the guy, too, that, you know, he'd, he'd come and ask you, you know, what do you think about this? Is there anything we can do? And, um, and even though I was still a young fella from New Zealand, he's, he was trying to pick my brains to see what we did in New Zealand mm. that can then also benefit him. Yeah. And what they do there as well. So, so no, and, but I mean, both, both grounds were great. I mean, they, for the two tests we had at, at Lords and the one test that I did in Manchester, um, they got me to sit on the roller for the majority of the time and prepare the wicket. So, oh, awesome. you know, you're obviously very grateful for those, um, yeah. those opportunities. That's right. Um, so I think we, I asked you a similar question earlier, but how, how much of that information you soaked up from those couple of years would you say has gone into making you the turf manager that you are today? Oh, yeah, that's a difficult one to say. I think a lot of it is the, the mental, I guess, the way that Pete Marin, the, the one at Manchester, the way he looked at things. He said, doesn't matter where you've come from, how young you are, what you've done, he can still ask you questions that can try and benefit the ground. So mm-hmm. it's, it's more um, that mindset of, of what can you do better here. Right. Um, I'm not going to rest on my laurels. I'm not going to sit here and think, yeah, that pitch was awesome. I'm just going to do the same every time. Just don't want to have that complacency. You just want to keep moving forward and keep learning and keep trying things. It's almost important in the turf industry as well, probably most things, but especially in the turf industry when everything is still almost evolving and people are figuring out different ways to do things. eh? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about your transition to the New Zealand cricket role and bit about your transition into come to the Bay Oval so look forward to that in a second alright we're back um, just before we kick off again Jared, my beer's empty Ooh. might have to try Can't and fix that, that. Can we? have you brought some more along have you? There you go. yeah mate Glenn gave me a uh, set of six so we've got six different types of beers here so uh, I think a good one for you will be an easy drinking saltwater blonde oh there we go it's a lager. 
What am I going for? I'm going to go for the blowhole pale ale. So, uh, quite like my pale ale, so looking forward to this one. Should be good. That, um, that sour is decent, I reckon. Yeah, mate. In terms of sours, mm. you know how much I hate the sours. <laughs> that was good. Um, right, back into it. Now we've had our little drinks break. Well, hang on. That's a lot better. <laughs> oh, love my blowhole. He approves. Um, I suppose now I just want to talk about you leaving the base and then transitioning into your role for New Zealand cricket and what that was about, what that involved, yeah. All right, so um, the job actually came up while I was still in Manchester. Um, one of the guys back here, a mate of mine back in Wellington, he uh, sent me a message and said, oh, you know, he's seen this job. So I kind of had a look at it and I thought, yeah, actually that looks pretty cool. So what it was is uh, back then um, the turf manager at Eden Park and at AMI Stadium at the time, so Mark Perriman and Chris Lewis, they'd already been around the uh, every ground in the country. Um, and New Zealand Cricket had put in place a warrant of fitness, so they'd, they'd assessed each venue um, to see where they were at in terms of the new warrant of fitness that we're bringing in. And then part of what they were doing, they realised that actually a lot of venues don't have the resources to put in and to actually uh, be consistently preparing pitches to a high standard. It was only really the major venues at the time. Um, and they needed somebody just to, I guess, oversee that process, make sure. Um, so they had to be talking with the, the district association, the major association, the local councils or the venue owners um, and the ground staff and everything to, I guess, collaborate uh, how they get up to Warren Fitness Standard um, and also other areas that they, I guess, need to, to work on to consistently provide wickets of a high quality to improve um, the game in New Zealand. Because I guess back then, was um, even though definitely weren't as bad as what the low and slow 80s wickets were that they used <laughs> to talk about quite regularly, um, they didn't like the, I guess, the fact that a lot of medium pace bowlers were um, at the domestic level were picking up the bulk of the wickets. So it wasn't wasn't the big quick bowlers that were doing well at domestic level. Um, and yeah, they weren't, and same with spin bowlers. Spin bowlers weren't overly dominating through that time as well. So yeah, uh, I guess that's how the Warren of Fitness started. That's how the the role um, started at New Zealand Cricket as well, and I was obviously lucky enough to uh, to get that. So basically, the day after I flew flew back into the country, flew down there for an interview, um, was lucky enough to get the job. So that was uh, that was an awkward conversation going back um, <laughs> first day back on the job back at in Wellington, saying uh, sorry, but yeah. I've got another, got another job. Here's my month's notice. <laughs> yeah, but luckily they were they were very supportive of that as well. They realised um, what the role entailed, and and uh, yeah, the turf manager at the time, Trev Jackson, he was um, he was yeah very supportive as well. He he knew I was ready to I guess probably move on and, and do other things as well. How old were you at that time? Oh jeez, uh, 20, 29 I think. Yeah, oh, so still pretty young to be going into because. Would you argue that's probably the biggest job you could get in New Zealand cricket turf, or oh, not necessarily? It was, it was kind of different, I guess, because um, I guess the the turf managers at all the major stadiums at the time, um, yeah, they obviously, you know, you, you you're at a major stadium, you've got all sorts of events, and it's mm. they got paid a lot better than what I was getting paid at Lincoln. I mean, right. I think one or two of them got asked, and then they just kind of looked at the money and like, no. Nah, no way. So, 
I guess as someone who's, I mean, I was a tour IC at the time. And it's, um, yeah, it was definitely a big step up. Um, but yeah, some people would see it as, yeah, as something pretty good. Others will prefer the stadium environment. What, um, before that job came out, what were you thinking in terms of your future? Were you just kind of hanging out for an opportunity? Did you want to, were you happy at the basin or did you want to try and progress into a, like the turf manager role somewhere else? Or? Oh, like I love the basin. It was good, but you'd just wake up in the mornings and you'd hear the wind and it's just, it is just absolutely soul destroying. Um, yeah, first thing in the morning you wake up, uh, nah, don't want to go out there and deal with the covers in this wind again. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, I guess one of the reasons too why I started looking overseas is that um, the CEO at the time basically said, well, we can't give you any significant pay rises because you've kind of, you know, you've done all your papers, you've, you know, you've had time and et cetera, et cetera. So I knew I wasn't going to get, I guess, salary increases, so I was kind of going to go nowhere there. Um, and while there are lots of great events, uh, the basin's really cool, yeah, it was just time to move on and, and look for something different. Mm. And this one here, I, I guess with New Zealand cricket, I thought, well, I can, I can actually... You know, give back to trying because one thing I kind of realised at the time too is that there's kind of a bit of a disconnect between New Zealand cricket and the venues itself. In terms of what they wanted from the venues? Well, just the way they communicated and, and the like. So I kind of felt at the time there, there, was, a, there was a bit of a need to, I guess, um, be that person in the middle to, you know, I could see from both sides and I could see there's a disconnect there and it's just trying to bring that all together to, to once again... So just what I said earlier too is about making things better for cricket in New Zealand mm. um, going back to that warrant of fitness is there a short answer of what that looked like what a ground would require to receive that warrant uh, had to do yeah so quality of pitches was one aspect um, the resources that the ground staff had so in terms of machinery um, even things like super soppers grounds back then didn't even have full size covers um, didn't have enough ground staff. Some of them would be just, you know, one person that's not even full time, and you know, it'll be a contractor that come in and, you know, they just get a ground up for the for a particular game. They might have one game a summer. Right. Um, and then it also went into, uh, I guess, the changing rooms. Whether the changing rooms were big enough, um, whether there's enough public facilities for the crowds that turned up. And then you've got, obviously, your scorers, your umpires, um, video analysis, I think, was starting to kick off at that point. So having facilities for all of those people as well. So it's quite a bit that goes into it, really, for a warrant. Well, yeah, it's just as the game was coming, becoming more professional, um, yeah, obviously, in a professional environment, you need the facilities to, mm-hmm. to work with that as well. Right. So you weren't really on the tools much at that time, or...? Uh, and yeah, initially, yes. Uh, it was sort of in the first year or two um, when Martin Sneedon was there, it was, I was also overseeing Lincoln. And right. while we were building that role up, um, I was also helping out a lot of Lincoln during those first two years. But um, we also had a guy in charge there too. So you know, when I wasn't around the country, um, I would just come back and just be one of the boys and help out. Okay. Um, and we talked earlier about your... Your journey to the USA, um, you prepared a couple of grounds there, didn't you? So was that because you're in this role, you got to go over there, or they've headhunted you specifically? What, what how that eventuate? Um, so, 
Excuse me. Um, so towards my time, the end of the end of my time with New Zealand cricket, um, basically they were talking about this ground over in um, over in Florida. Uh, they were wanting to, I guess, New Zealand cricket was wanting to get into the US market. They realised that there was a lot of expat Indians over in the USA, and that there is potentially if US if cricket in USA could boom. Um, then there would be, you know, a good market there. So they were working with USA Cricket on a lot of different fronts, and, and one of those was having a game at this ground down in Florida. So the ground had been given, I guess, uh, ICC approval, um, and they just, so they decided to host, um, or New Zealand Cricket, or the Black Caps play there and host Sri Lanka for three 2020s. So they were the home, New Zealand were the home team? New Zealand was the home team. Right. Yeah, and that was following on from the the World, I think it was the World Cup. I'm pretty sure it was ODIs in the West Indies. Um, so when it was announced, probably back in oh, six months out from the games, and I think the games were in about May, so it would have been you know early summer back in New Zealand. The games were announced that they were going to play these after the World Cup in the West Indies. And um, at the time, I spoke to, to our CEO and said, has anyone actually looked at the ground to see whether it's capable? And, oh, it's been signed off by the ICC, so don't worry about it. All right, sweet. That's all good. And then uh, about a month out, um, or three weeks out, uh, we had three guys from New Zealand Cricket go over marketing, operational, and commercial. Um, they went over there to help set up the game, meet the people in the US, uh, you know, how are we going to spread the word, how are we going to get on TV, etc. Um, they also called over the ICC um, pitch consultant, I guess, right. who was in the West Indies with the World Cup. He came up, had a look at it, and he's like, um, OK, I can't stay here because I've got to go back to the West Indies for the World Cup. You need to get Jared over here because I've met him a couple of times yeah. and he'd been out here for the under-19 World Cups and the like. So it's always uh, great to, to get a call up two weeks out from a game. Um, you need to get your butt over here. There's serious concerns about the wicket. Yeah. Um, and when I got that phone call, I was just driving uh, down south because the wife and I and we had two kids at the time um, were going on holiday. Start of a two-week holiday, <laughs> so you can imagine how well that went down. So this is just after you've had a busy summer, and you're yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, you can't really turn down an opportunity like that. I could hear the wife, you know, she was really good about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, got flown over there two weeks out from the game. Turned out, it turns out that the ground itself, because USA Cricket weren't playing a lot of cricket on it, the local major league soccer were using it. Oh, okay. So they were running over the ground a lot um, in the lead up to that game. They'd, the season had finished by then, yeah. luckily. But um, was that including over the block and everything? Yep. Oh, wow. So there wasn't a lot of grass on the block. Um, where there was, it was rye grass, which but it was a cooch, it was a cooch wicket. Right. So there were bits of rye grass all through it, and it was just a mismatch of different grasses, and it was just ugly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the one day that. The OCC pitch consultant spent there. He was doing a lot of work to try and get it, I guess, as, as cleaned out and as tidy as possible. Um, yeah, so got over there and, and basically we did what we could. Um, yeah, it was an interesting couple of weeks, but we got through it. The wickets were, weren't great. Um, but, yeah, managed to get a couple of games up and going. I think one got washed out. 
because um, of course that was the time too where the mid-afternoon thunderstorms were coming into Florida, oh, so yeah. you know it was thunderstorm season. So, was... so yeah, it was interesting, and yeah, wasn't happy with how the wickets played. And I think one game we might have they might have been four down for two runs. New Zealand oh. were at one point, but managed to scrape through to 120, and yeah, Probably not defended great. It. Not great. <laughs> um, yeah, so you that was obviously an exciting opportunity. Um, working with New Zealand cricket and would I be correct in saying it helped you get this job because you gave the warrant to this ground and was it 2007 I'm reading oh you mean the New Zealand cricket role as opposed to going over to yeah sorry yeah, yeah. yeah. god I don't think the Florida could help me get a job anyway um, yeah I guess it did I mean yeah I did come up I was part of uh, giving the, the venue a warrant of fitness um, so I knew I've been here a couple of times, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I just, you know, you got to see the venue, you got to see the region. Um, and it was also a time, too, where I guess things were getting really political, not with the New Zealand cricket as such, but the role was. You were just dealing with councils all the time. You were dealing with the, the conflict between councils and the, the different associations um, and the venue and the, the groundies themselves. And... And, um, yeah, it was just kind of starting to lose the, the passion and the enjoyment of why I you know, went and took that role. Um, plus, yeah, by that point we'd had our first child. Um, so I was kind of, you know, is this, this what we want to do? Do I want to be away for six months of the year and hardly see my kids growing up? Um, so, yeah, and my wife came from Blenheim. I grew up in Nelson. It was like either Nelson, Blenheim or Tauranga. Yeah. These were the, you know, living and growing up in Nelson, going to Wellington, the weather's windy, <laughs> not great. Uh, going to Christchurch, it's cold and it's, yeah. So, you know, we wanted to go somewhere where the weather was good because that's what we were used to, it's what we grew up around. So, mm. um, yeah, and, I, and so obviously once I saw this venue, I'm thinking, shit, this is the place to be. Um, Sexton Oval was also on the radar at the time as well. Um, but yeah, I just didn't didn't think that that had a very good setup in terms of two councils, um, a district association, a major association. So once again, it's that whole political. It's a lot mess. of bodies to yep. meet with. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas up here, at least it was a it was a trust. Was, the venue's run by a trust, so you're separate from the councils. You're separate from the um, the local Bay of Plenty Cricket Association, and etc. You're you're a venue as opposed to. You know, even though we still deal with all these different you know, um, organisations, not employed by them, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so you start here in 2010? Yep. How did that eventuate? Did, um, did the Oval Trust hit you up or did you go to them? No, well, part of my role back then too with New Zealand Cricket was um, pretty much every job in cricket or in and sorry, cricket turf management around the country, they basically came to me and then I distributed it to make sure everyone got the job advert, whether okay. it was a 2IC, whether it was apprentice, you know. Because um, I had, yeah, I guess all those contacts of, of all the guys that were currently mm-hmm. around the country. Um, so I was actually in Florida when the one came through for here and Calvin sent me the email and said, oh, can you get this out? And so I was sitting over there going wife and I have already talked about those three places that we wanted to go and yet I knew this one and so when I got back um, yeah I sort of rang Calvin and had a chat to him about it and um, 
yeah, it just kind of went from there. And yeah. luckily enough, I was, uh, yeah, I got the job. So Yeah. Was there an interview process with different candidates and stuff from what you know? Or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So normal interview process. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, so because you've seen this ground so young, was it like almost an accomplishment to see it? You Did you see it when before it was dug out or...? No, no, no. So you you got here when it just when it needed its warrant was the first time you came here. Yeah, pretty much. Right. So seeing it from then to progressing into a first class venue, you must feel quite proud that you had something to do with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. I knew right from the start. I mean, you got Kelvin and David Johnson, who both at the time when it first started worked for Bay Plenty Cricket. Yeah. Um, they had this vision and they had it. They've done amazingly well. I mean, they've put it in the middle of a sand dune. Mm. Um, they've put Cooch on the outfield so straight away you know that there's going to be a free draining outfield um, it's got summer grass on it that we can mow down lower than most of the stadiums around the country better for cricket um, yeah the block that we went in and was in at that point when I first started um, wasn't built very well so I was lucky enough that part of my role was to come in I had to rebuild things the way I wanted them and that that in itself is is quite rare. You've you generally inherit what's already there when you go to a new ground, mm. and you've just got to deal with what's there. Yeah. Um, I I had the luxury of coming in and deciding, you know, what clays we put in, what depth we put them in, and knowing everything that I'd learned over that five years with New Zealand cricket, um, putting all of that into place. And so yeah, that that side of it, yeah, very sort of I guess proud of as well. Mm. But then it's also amazing just seeing how I guess the rest of the facility that um, yeah that Calvin's worked through and, and built the lights, the extension extension of the banks, um, the pavilion, you know, all the infrastructure that's gone in since then. When I first started, I was working out of a twenty foot container <laughs> um, for about two years, and yeah, just slowly. The progress is over the 10 years or so that we've been here has, yeah, it's just been pretty cool. Was that hard at first to not have the kind of um, access to facilities that other grounds might have or did you know that the bigger picture was in play and it was going to... Oh, no, I knew the big picture in play. It was, it was the whole, the vision of where we wanted to go, what mm. we wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so, oh, yeah, it was an idea working out of a 20-foot container, but back then we didn't have, uh, I think we only had maybe two or three Super Smash games a year. Right, yeah. Um, so you, you just dealt with it. Mm. So it was, you know, you knew what the what the uh, the long game was. So mm. Was that the appeal of taking this job as well, the blank canvas, I suppose you'd call it, on the ground? You could yep. put your thumbprint on it pretty early with what clays and, as you say, what depths you put them in and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I've always been a big fan of... Um, of I guess doing not muddying the waters so everything is is kind of I guess you know while it's not ultimately my decision and I still have to get you know agreement with senior management and everything like that it's, this is on my head mm. if I go out and build the block this way and there's no excuses if it fails yeah. that's that's on me whereas you know obviously if you go into other grounds then you can go in there and say well you know the block's too deep or wrong grass is on here or whatever and you can make mm. excuses that's what I liked about this job is nah this is on me if I stuff it up it's my fault how do you I, handle that pressure then oh no that's the way I prefer it yeah yeah yeah. do you I get don't nervous like... before games oh yeah definitely definitely yeah. get nervous before games yeah yeah so how do you deal with that just one of those things you learn to deal with or oh you try and enjoy it yeah right I mean there's you know 
there's ways of looking at it. I mean, there's, you have sleepless nights, but, I mean, that was around the test match. That was more about, um, we, you know, we had an issue with a sprinkler in the middle of the block. And even though you do everything you know you can to make sure that that water's not going to come on, there's day, there's, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, God, what if this has happened or what if that's happened or what if, you know, this has failed? And there was times where I nearly came in and just cut the pipe to make sure that water didn't go out there. But, you know, it's just real, real weird, silly things like that. But in terms of your preparation and that, you just do what you can. And, you know, you just accept that it's not necessarily going to be perfect every time. I mean, mm-hmm. as much as you want to, you just have to accept that, you know, you just, you're going to cop it. Yeah. You can't satisfy everyone. What is the best surface you think you've produced at the ground then? Oh, jeez. Okay, we'll go, we'll go best, white, <laughs> best white ball surface and then best red ball surface. Red ball surface can include first class cricket and the test match. Wow. Um, I guess best white ball surface would probably be the... I think it was two seasons ago when we got our first 300 run ODI game. Uh, that was a relief. That's always, um, well, you don't expect it every time. It's always nice to get that monkey off your back and, mm-hmm. and get one that gets up to there. Uh, in terms of Red Bull, um, there's probably a Plunkett Shield game before the test um, where we had a little bit more moisture in it. Um, yeah, we, we pushed the boundary a little bit further than what we did on the test match, and I actually thought that, that probably played a little bit better than the test. So in hindsight, knowing what we know now, I know to uh, yeah to not be um, yeah not be too shy about it and put the balls on the line a bit more. Do you remember when you were when you first heard that Bayer was getting its first Test match? Oh, Just probably read time. the email. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we kind of we knew. I guess we were in the running. There were a few rumours floating around. Um, but it's kind of, I guess, when it starts getting serious is when the media start writing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, we had a few false starts. We had, I think the previous season, we thought we had our best chance of getting a test uh, and we didn't get one. So, um, yeah, once it finally got confirmed, yeah, it was, it was finally a relief. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember much from those five days? Of the test itself? Yeah. Yeah, I remember a fair bit. Yeah. What yeah. were some of the highlights? Oh. oh, obviously the win itself and such a big win. Yeah. Nine innings. Um, it's always good to see, you know, BJ score his 200 and guys like Santa get his first century. Just a shame he couldn't uh, get a five for on top of that on the last day. <laughs> um, but no, in terms of the, you know, of the pitch itself, to see it break up as much as it did and get as variable as it did, which doesn't really happen a lot in New Zealand, that was, um, yeah, that was, I guess, what we were aiming for, uh, what we knew we could do. Um, so, yeah, pretty happy we finally got there. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I just want to go on to some questions we actually received through the Instagram page. Um, so you could call them quickfire. Probably don't have to answer them quickfire. We can go into a bit of depth. We've got a bit of time, so... Um, suppose we'll start off with one here. It says, "What would be the ideal beer to brew up?" Because you're a bit of a home brewer, aren't you? Yes, I am. So, what would be the answer to that one? What's the ideal beer to brew up? Um, well, I have been working on an IPA, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm playing around with the different hop flavours. So, I, 
I don't really like the bitter beers a great deal. Um, very much into the uh, the aroma hops and the flavours that they they give. So yeah, trying to trying to work through that. And uh, I guess um, I'm lucky enough that I've got a brother-in-law who uh, who for my birthday and Christmas buys me beers and then asks me questions and gets me to to rate the beers. So I'm starting to realise now that you know I don't like the big deep multi flavours out of them. So maybe a New England IPA is, you know, more the track that I need to go down. So mm. working through a bit of that and um, actually I'm hoping to catch up with Glenn through the winter here and see whether <laughs> I can talk him into, uh, to, um, you know, marketing one of my beers if they're any good. But uh, Need a groundsman beer. Yeah, mate. <laughs> um, the groundsman's... Uh, the groundsman spot. Yeah, the groundsman spot, isn't it? <laughs> uh, second one here is if you had to change codes and turf, what would that, what would you turn to? So I suppose if you had to change... A different sports venue, not cricket. Yeah, look. <laughs> What'd you change? It's a hard one. Maybe when I got older, I'd go to bowls. Uh, <laughs> really like the bowls. Greenkeepers are a damn good bunch of buggers. So, yeah. um, no, if I was going to leave the cricket side of it, I'd probably leave the industry, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now the next couple I've got here, I suspect they're from the Hagley Park boys. So, oh, this will be good then. Yeah, looking forward to that. <laughs> here is beware. <laughs> um, this one here says, "Would you prefer tennis ball bounce or holding?" <laughs> I think that's a bit of a dig at certain people, but <laughs> neither. Neither. That's Quick. probably <laughs> um, tennis ball bounce or holding. That's oh, pretty much the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> uh, next one is, "How long have you been a silver fox for?" Oh. <laughs> That's got to come from Rupert, doesn't it? I reckon. Thanks, Rupert. Um, <laughs> mate, I started going grey from about 22, so about <laughs> bloody 80 years ago. Hadn't even left the council then. <clears throat> no, can't even blame it on the kids either. Um, yeah, a nah, very, very long time. Rupert would have been in nappies back then, I think. <laughs> um, and the last one I've got here is, are all groundies, and I'll censor this, alcoholics, and what's your favourite drop to consume? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I can't speak for everyone, but uh, yep, <laughs> um, pretty much. Uh, yeah, look, the Create Grand Skies, mate. I think they're all pretty, pretty good blokes. I get on with pretty much everyone. I don't, you know, don't have anything bad to say about any of them. And yeah, we don't mind a, uh, a good drink at the end of the day or when we catch up through winter and that. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to this year, which is. Really sad, but um, you know, the last few years, or last, this was the second year we would have got invited to the New Zealand Cricket Awards, and um, yeah, we generally have a damn good catch up when we're there. Um, in terms of what sort of, you know, what I like to drink, mate, yeah, I do, I'm very much a craft beer person nowadays. Um, do like the IPAs, starting to find out I like the New England IPAs. Um, you know, one of my favourites is the, uh, where is it? Used to be called the Kraken, but that's changed now to the Sea Beast from uh, from Mount Brewing. There, I've uh, got way too drunk many nights on that stuff. <laughs> Good drop, though. Good drop. One one I'm looking forward to uh, is Mr. Jones. He's uh, just given me, so it's the first time I'm going to try that. Um, one for one for over dinner. Yeah, I think so. I yeah. think so. I'm really looking forward to that one. Outstanding. So, but no, that's about it. Um, right, one last question. This is an Instagram one. This is one. I want to ask you, what's next for Bay Oval? Next, say, 24 months, what does that look like? Ooh. All right, so 
I guess we, we did have some plans uh, leading into the Women's World Cup. We wanted to build the second half of the pavilion. Um, now that the uh, coronavirus has come through, uh, we're not sh- quite sure how that's going to affect everything. Well, if the Women's World Cup still goes ahead this this uh, summer, uh, yeah, now we won't have it have the second half of the pavilion built in time for that, or very unlikely anyway. Um, so we're still working, I guess, towards that. Um, like to build an indoor centre as well. Um, and then uh, I guess the biggie is the indoor practice facility that we're looking to build over the next few months. That's grass block? That's a grass block uh, with basically a retractable roof um, greenhouse. Wow. So, yeah, hopefully that'll be the go and it allows, uh, I guess, teams to come in and train 20, uh, 12 months of the year. Will that be quite unique to New Zealand, that sort of facility? Uh, from what I understand, it's the first time a, a greenhouse like this will be used for any sport. Oh, wow. In the world yeah. or in New Zealand? Oh, yeah, wow. in the world. So um, if I'm wrong on that, then yeah, definitely uh, first time for cricket anyway. Wow, that's outstanding. So there's a fair bit coming up then. Keep you yeah, busy. there's a wee bit going on. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the background. And yeah, hopefully uh, we'll, uh, we'll find out in due course just how much cricket we're going to get this summer and what's going to happen. But um, yeah, no, we're still going ahead and building the structure and yeah, hopefully um, getting teams into train and mm. keep us busy. Awesome. Well, um, Jared, can't thank you enough for sitting down with me today. I know I'm a bit annoying to talk to you sometimes, but it's good you could set aside a little bit of time for me. Um, where can people reach you on your Instagram? Add to your 10 followers you've already got. Jeez, oh, mate, I'm too old for that sort of thing. I think your handle's your birth, it's your name and your birth here, so whatever that is. All right, thanks, mate. <laughs> you All probably right. know a lot more than me. <laughs> yeah. All right, thank you very much, Jared. Yeah, Cole, thanks very much for inviting me on here too, mate. And I just want to, you know, have another shout-out to Glenn down at Mount Brewing. Um, always good to throw a few beers our way, and he's a bloody good bastard too. Mm. And also um, to your main sponsor, Bond & Co., um, Oh, like you've the, had a bit to do with Bond & Co though, actually, haven't you? Yeah, look, um, Jace has been great. He uh, hooked me up with a suit the first time we went up to the New Zealand's Awards dinner and, um, yeah, actually had Jeff Allett come across to me and, and he was very impressed with my suit. actually commented that I was the best-looking man in the uh, <laughs> in the whole complex. So, Jeez, I um, think that's a pretty good advert for Bond & Co then. <laughs> <laughs> Not too corny either, is no, it? No, no. <laughs> so, no, no, obviously JC's looked after me in the past as well, so, no, I really appreciate what he's done for me too and, yeah. Awesome. All right. Cheers, Jared. No worries. Cheers, Mark.